If you were to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, and we're going to pick up in verse 12. As, as Mark said, we're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper today, and you'll see that as you turn in your Bibles. And, and I think probably the first thing to say about the Lord's Supper is that it reminds us that what we get by believing the gospel of, of coming to faith in Jesus is, is Jesus himself. You know, it's, it's easy to miss that because sometimes, you know, we, we tell the gospel story and, and we might try to summarize it by saying, well, the gospel is about uh, Jesus saves sinners, you know, or, or something along those lines. And, and sometimes we miss the fact that, that really what, what is happening in the gospel is that God is giving us fellowship with himself. And so that what we get in, in, in faith in Christ, in union with Jesus, is, is nothing less than Jesus himself. And this is really what the Lord's Supper reminds us about. And I think we'll, we're going to see that this morning through the text. You know, it reminds us, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper reminds us that, that every good thing we have as Christians, and just think of all the good things we could list, um, you know, that we have as Christians, uh, regeneration, um, uh, uh, renewed hearts that, that more and more are desiring holiness and, and more and more uh, desiring to put away that sin that stood between us and God, uh, fellowship with the saints, uh, hope of eternal life, um, peace with God. Uh, the list could go on and on and on. All the good things that we have as Christians we have because of our union with Jesus. It's a result, all of it, of, of Jesus' work of redemption for us. And, and we come to share in this redemption in no other way than being uh, united to him by faith. And, and so this is really just to say that the Lord's Supper is a visible picture, a visible sign uh, of the gospel. So in this sermon series, we're slowly making our way, as we approach the Easter season, we're slowly making our way to the passion of Jesus Christ as Mark records it for us. And, and already, though, we are being clued into uh, what the Lord's Supper means by having the gospel laid out for us really early in, in the story. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not that, that the, the gospel is some sort of uh, climax to a bunch of other stuff that kind of happens over here and, and it's sort of tangentially related or it's hard to figure out well, what does that have to do with the gospel. No, already the basic facts of the gospel are being laid out for us. And this should clue us in to what the Lord's Supper really means for us. It should clue us into you know, what it's doing for us as, as we partake of it. It's, it should clue us into why Jesus instituted it for us. It should clue us into all the grand promises of the gospel that are represented in it. You know, Jesus is not someone merely to, to see from, from a distance and admire, but he's someone to know and admire and worship in union with him. And, and this union with him is not something that happens to us naturally, as we all know. It's, it's a supernatural work of God that occurred in our hearts. And it's not something that we did or were able to do in our own strength. It was something that happened to us because of God's mercy and grace. As God came and overwhelmed the, the defenses of our rebellion against him, overwhelmed our just natural apathy to the things of God, overwhelmed our desire to kind of make our own way, to decide what is good and, and, and beautiful and right for our own selves in no regard to what God had declared about those things. It, God overwhelmed all of those things and, and, and made new hearts in us and, and drew, him to, drew us to himself. And, and this is a supernatural work of God. And, and consider how, you know, in our natural selves the, and, you know, the natural world, it doesn't look for the things of God. It, it expects to, uh, uh, the things of the world to just kind of go on as, as they expect, according to the dictates of its, of its own reason. The natural world looks for things that, you know, accord to what we as humans can do in our own strength. And, and the gospel shows us that we must not look to the things of the world, we must look to the things of God. And so, you know, where the world tells us, uh, put your hope in, in things that you can see and that you can grasp and that you can get. The Bible tells us, put your hope in the invisible kingdom of God. 
you know, where the world tells us, do whatever you can to get the most out of life, the Bible tells us, no, put aside this life and seek a better one in another age through union with Christ. And where the world tells us, you know, we must look to our own selves for our own power and wisdom and strength and salvation, the Bible tells us, no, look to God alone for hope and, and wisdom and, and power and salvation. And so while we may be tempted in our natural selves to look to the things that are inherent to our own power, the Bible tells us to look to one who came and revealed the invisible God. But lest that we should think that this, is, this, this confines the gospel to some ideas in our heads or, or just some feelings in our hearts, God has provided in the Lord's Supper a visible word of what he has done so that his people can see it and have it confirmed for them uh, in, in the, the, the visible things of bread and wine. And so this supernatural work of God, the supernatural work of God that overwhelmed our, our sinful hearts and our natural defenses and made us new people is represented in the natural things of bread and wine. And so we see in the bread and wine a representation of what the gospel preaches in words. And we understand by it two important things. One, Jesus' body was broken by death in our stead. And two, his blood was spilled out that we might live in new covenant fellowship with God forever. And so how could we be assured that we have peace with God by the blood of Jesus? And how could, we, how could our faith in Jesus or, or God be nourished so that we may grow and become more and more like Jesus? Really, the Lord's Supper, I think, is the, the crucial answer to these questions. I'd put it to you like this. I think this is the, kind of the key truth of the passage we're going to look at, and that is the Lord's Supper visibly represents and physically confirms that the death of Jesus satisfied God's judgment against our sin so that we may fellowship with him forever. It visibly represents and physically confirms that the death of Jesus satisfied God's judgment against our sin so that we could fellowship with him forever. So turning to our text, let's, let's see it from the text itself. Picking up in verse 12, Mark 14, verse 12. Hear God's word. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, the disciples said to him, where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they, and they prepared the Passover. We'll pause there for a minute. So the Passover was a familiar feast to Jesus and his disciples. They would have celebrated it every year, uh, along with, with many other thousands of Jews who came from all over the world to celebrate it. And, and, and it was a very meaningful feast to them as well. In it, God reminded his people what he had done for them when he delivered them from Egypt. It reminded them of God's judgment against the Egyptians when he visited them and, and killed all of their firstborn, and it reminded them of his mercy to Israel when he passed over their houses, as when the, the avenging angels saw the, the, the blood of the lamb sprinkled over their doorposts. We read about all of this in Exodus 12, and, and remember, the blood of the lamb sprinkled over the doorposts signified that the death of another had taken the place of those under judgment. 
And attached to the Passover feast was also the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which this text talks about. And the two feasts were, were so closely connected uh, that in the minds of the Jewish people, they really would have been considered almost as really one feast. And what the Feast of Unleavened Bread reminded the Jewish people of was that as they left Egypt in haste and, and didn't have any time to, to cook their bread with the leaven that usually causes it to, to rise slowly, uh, they, they left all this behind and it taught them that God required them, as part of his deliverance of them, that they put away and, and leave behind the sin of wickedness and rebellion. And, and so, you know, as fascinating as, as all of this is, what kind of Luke, or uh, sorry, Mark is, is, is keying in on and kind of hoping that we uh, take from all of this is that Jesus celebrates the Passover feast to remind us that we need a sacrificial lamb. It, it's, it's, it's to connect for us the mission of Jesus to what God had done for his people throughout redemption history. It's, it's not something new as, as though Jesus knows suddenly about a new way to, to deal with sin. Instead, it's something uh, more effective because Jesus is the final sacrificial lamb, the, the one who once for all takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the one that the Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are finally pointing to. They're, he's the one that they're really all about if we have the eyes, to, and ears to, to, the eyes to see it and the ears to hear it. And he's not merely a lamb that, that reminds us of what God requires for sin. That, that, that's, that's true. You know, think about how every time the, the Jews would have gone to celebrate the Passover and saw the sacrificial lamb there sprayed out on the altar and, and the blood covering all of that, they would have been visibly remind, reminded that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so it would have, it would have with, with just sort of a visceral reaction, they would have seen this is what God requires for sin. But, but Jesus is uh, the Lord's Supper, and what Jesus is doing doesn't merely remind us of what God requires for sin. It, re it reminds us that Jesus is the lamb who satisfies God's judgment against sin for good, that he has absorbed God's judgment against our sin once and for all, so that passes us by forever. So Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples because he knows that we need a sacrificial lamb, and he wants us to see that he is our sacrificial lamb, sacrificed for us once and for all. Jesus celebrates the, the, the uh, Passover with his disciples because his mission is not merely to be a prophet with some interesting things to say about God or uh, a, a wonderful example of moral excellence, but his mission is to be a sacrifice for the sins of his people, the one who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus' celebration of the Passover reminds, Passover reminds us that, that the gospel has its foundation in blood and death. You know, that, that's a... That's a striking thing to say, isn't it? And it's, it's one of the things that makes the gospel such foolishness to the world. The world is filled with religions that, that have some key to have eternal life. I mean, isn't it? Or, or, you know, ways in which we can sort of outwit death or figure out how to have a good life despite all the nastiness that we're going to experience. But only Christianity offers us one, the Savior, who, 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 who died in our place and whose death is the prerequisite to our life. When Israel celebrated the Passover, they were reminded that they had been saved from, from judgment in Egypt because of the Passover lamb. In the same way, Jesus shows us that we have been saved from eternal judgment only by his death for us. And so when we think about all that the, the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread teach us, it should clue us into the fact that it's really a mistake to read our Bibles in a sort of disjointed way 
to say, well, that's the Old Testament way of dealing with sin. You know, all of this gory kind of morbid stuff with, with lambs and bulls and goats and, and smells and bells and all of that sort of stuff. But Jesus, he kind of cleans that all up. And so now it's some nice ideas and we can, you know, go home and, and all, that's all over and done with. It should remind us that what the Old Testament is pointing us to is the sacrificial lamb. And so that when we think about all that the gospel means for us, we really do ourselves a disservice if we sort of take ourselves away and remove ourselves from what the Old Testament teaches us. You know, so, so Mark is, is pretty—and and think about what Mark is doing. He, he's, he's writing to primarily, it seems, a Gentile audience. Scholars speculate—we've we said this before—scholars speculate that, that Mark's gospel is probably a distillation of Peter's basic evangelistic message to the Christians in Rome. And obviously, the Christians in Rome would have included some Jews, but it also would have included some, some Gentiles. And they might not have been very familiar with the history of Israel and all that had gone before— and so why is it so important for Mark to include this tidbit about the Passover? You know, if, if, the, if, Jesus, if the mission of Jesus is brand new and it's a sort of new way of dealing with sin that doesn't really have much to do with the Old Testament, that's a strange thing to do. But I think we, what we see in reality is that even though he's preaching to Gentiles, even though we are Gentiles and even though we haven't had the same history in the flesh anyway, that we're tied into that history because everything that Jesus does for us is predicated upon the Old Testament signs and symbols that show us more clearly what Jesus' mission means for us. And so we must pay particular attention to the way in which Mark kind of ties in the Lord's Supper to the Passover because it's going to help us understand what the Passover is all about. J.C. Ryle, he, he says it in a good way, and I, I like the way he puts it. He, hear what he says. Let it be a rule with us in the reading of our Bibles to study the types and ordinances of the Mosaic law with prayerful attention. They are full of Christ. The altar, the scapegoat, the daily burnt offering, the day of atonement are all so many finger posts pointing to the great sacrifice offered by our Lord on Calvary. Those who neglect to study the Jewish ordinances as dark, dull, and uninteresting parts of the Bible only show their own ignorance and miss great advantages. Those who examine them with Christ as the key to their meaning will find them full of gospel light and comfortable truth. I love that phrase, gospel light and comfortable truth. That's so true. When we look to the Old Testament as, as the means, or, or as we, when we look to Jesus as the key to understanding the Old Testament, we find in them so much grace. I mean, that was kind of the whole point, really, of our previous sermon series, Grace in Unexpected Places. And we said, well, what's, what's you know, maybe the primary place in which Christians, at least today in the West, uh, are, are unaccustomed to seeing grace? And usually it's the Old Testament, right? And yet we saw over and over and over again that grace just met us again and again and again. And, and, and so we find it again, even even in Mark, that God highlights for us the connection between the Old Testament signs and symbols and the New Testament message of redemption and salvation, that they're one and the same, they're connected. Jesus is more effective. He helps us to understand what they mean, but he's not something new and disjointed from all of it. So we must understand, we must appreciate the message of Passover to help us understand the message of the Lord's Supper. So I'd ask you, I think this kind of raises a natural question for us, and I'd ask you this. What role does the Old Testament play in your understanding of redemption and the means of grace? Do you look to the means of grace to help you see the faithfulness of God to save and keep his people throughout history? Well, let's look again to our text, picking up in verse 17. Mark continues, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful 
and to say to him, after, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. We'll pause there on that very somber note. But it's a somber note, but it reminds us that few things better demonstrate the, the incompleteness of the Passover in itself to atone for, for our sin and remove uncleanness from God's people than what happens in these verses. In these verses, Jesus prophesies his betrayal by Judas, one of his disciples. And, and Judas himself, remember, he had participated in many in his whole life, every year participated in the Passover. And he was part of Jesus' inner circle. He, he saw all the ways in which Jesus performed miracles and his ministry throughout Judea and Galilee, and he had seen all the ways in which he fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament that the law and the prophets had pointed to. And yet, despite all of this, his heart was, was hardened by covetousness and, and the love of money. And so the Passover for Judas was a shadow of the real thing, but it had none of the substance. It couldn't break his, his heart from the grip of evil. And Jesus' prophecy of his betrayal also shows us that his death did not come about contrary to his design or will. His death did not catch him by surprise. It did not come as something that he wasn't prepared for or planning for. It didn't even come as something contrary to what he had come to earth to accomplish. Rather, it was the very thing he had come to earth to accomplish for his people. This was the hour for which he had prepared. His was the final sacrifice that all the Old Testament anticipated. Nothing happened but what he had always planned to happen. And so in considering these two things, that nothing happened to Jesus but what he had always planned to happen, and that Judas, uh, despite being the beneficiary of all these wonderful promises, despite seeing them visibly represented in Passover and in the ministry of Jesus, despite being counted among the visible people of God, yet none of this was sufficient to break his heart from the love of money and, and covetousness and ultimately uh, the worst sin that could be contemplated, namely the betrayal of, of the sovereign creator of the universe, the very one who'd come to fellowship with his people and to draw them unto God. The, the, these two things, we learn that, uh, or we learn in them, the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the exceeding grace in redemption. So consider this. The question that the disciples each ask, is it I, is it I, is it I, isn't, isn't answered by Jesus' individual answer to each one of them. No, it's not you, Peter. No, it's not you. No, it's not you. No, it's not you. It's just answered simply by, it is one of the 12. So Jesus doesn't offer an answer as though to comfort the 11 and kind of single Judas, like, yeah, you guys don't have anything to worry about. It. It's this wicked guy over here. You guys are all right. Um, it throws, but, 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 but he, he says, <laughs> he, he says, it is one of the 12. And so this shows the, 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 the desperate wickedness of Judas's sin. And it reminds the reader that this sin isn't beyond the pale of, of any of the 12. You know, and only by God's grace are they saved from this very sin. And this shows and throws into sharper relief the grace of redemption. The grace that God comes and he doesn't, it's not that, you know, we have in our own strength, or our own power, the ability to resist the worst sin in the world, but only by God's grace, only by his nearness to us. And so I think this raises a question for us. In what ways has God recently used the table to increase our love for him and our hatred for sin? 
and what has been the result. Really kind of, you know, it, it's easy to see in, in so much of this uh, ritual and, and symbol, and, and we forget that what it is doing that is that it is nourishing our faith, so that it, and it ought to have tangible results, that we become more and more uh, like Christ. We become more and more desiring to put off the old man, more and more hating of the, the sin that separated us from God, more and more hating the, the sin that continues to uh, mar our experience of his, of his presence and peace. Um, and it ought to, to nourish our faith in him, our, in him so that more and more we exhibit the, the fruit of the Spirit, more and more we exhibit love for one another. So it's not a bare, empty symbol. It's not a bare, empty uh, remembrance of something that happened in the past, and so in that way it sort of connects us to some, some ancient history that we might otherwise forget. It's a living reality that increases our faith in him so that, uh, that the result is uh, increased sanctification. The result is an increased hatred of the things of the world and, and love for Jesus. And, and really, Paul, in discussing this to the Corinthians, I mean, famously, they had all sorts of problems with the Lord's Supper, and, and some, you know, it seems that they, some of them, the richer among them, were eating it before the poorer arrived and, and excluding them, and they just missed the whole point, really, according to Paul, of the Lord's Supper. And, but he clues us into what it's supposed to do to us. And so he says to the Corinthians and to us, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So this clues us into the fact that the Lord's Supper is meant to do something in our hearts. It's meant to draw us nigh unto Christ so that we, so that we more and more want to put away the old man and more and more desire to put on the righteousness that Christ has uh, has bought for us by his, by his death and resurrection. Well, let's turn again to the text, picking up in verse 22. Mark continues, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Well, in these words, Jesus makes clear what is accomplished for us by his death and resurrection. This is the gospel preached with visible things. What we see is that Jesus gives us himself. He gives us his body. Now, we shouldn't suppose that when he said to his disciples, take, eat, this is my body, that he meant that in that moment, the bread actually became his physical body. I mean, that would have been a silly thing for him to say when his disciples could see him standing there right before them. And we shouldn't suppose that when we similarly take the, the, the bread in, in uh, our, our celebration of the supper today, that we are actually taking the physical body of Jesus and, and eating it. Um, rather, we should suppose that when we take the bread in the Lord's Supper, we're taking a, a, a sign of the Lord's body. In the same way that I might you know, hold up a, a piece of paper and draw and, and say, uh, here, here's my house and here's my car, no one would suppose that uh, on that piece of paper is the, the thing I actually drive to work or the place in which I actually... I mean, everyone would know that, you know, what I mean is this signifies my house, this signifies my car. Well, in the same way, Jesus takes up the, the, the bread and says, this is my body, this signifies my body. And in the same way, the wine signifies Jesus' blood, which is poured out for us and secures the new covenant made for us. And by his blood, Jesus saves us and keeps his people according to the promises he has made. 
Now, why is it necessary to have the body of Jesus? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So Jesus is showing us the significance of his death. He, he is showing us that what is about to happen in a few hours at Golgotha is the death required for the sin of his people. And if we take and eat his body, we show that what has happened is that we have been united to him by faith. And when we feed on him, we are nourished by him so that his death for sin becomes our death for sin and his resurrection to new life becomes our resurrection to life. And you know, Jesus often used symbolic imagery to show those around him what his death meant and signified. You know, we could multiply the examples throughout the New Testament, but just think about uh, John 6, you know, where he uses kind of similar language, and he says, um, uh, I am the true bread that came out of heaven, um, the living bread that came down from heaven. And, and he's referring there to, to the manna that the Israelites ate in the wilderness, and they were nourished by that. And, and he's saying, you know, in the same way that your fathers took the, the manna in the wilderness, so you must take me if you desire to have life. But in our passage, Jesus doesn't give us merely a, a way to remember uh, what his sacrifice is all about, but he does something much more. He gives us a way to know for sure, to know for sure that it's a reality for our, for our lives to know for sure that the reality of his death for sin is a covering for us, that it absorbed the, righteousness, the righteous wrath of God against our sin. And so that if we receive it by faith, then it's a reality for us, that, that we know for sure that we are God's and that he loves us and that his blood covers us. And consider that what this means. We can't have salvation apart from union with Christ. Or to put it another way, unless we participate with Christ in his death and resurrection, there's no hope for us at all. Now, this participation is not the kind of a partnership where we do some of the, the work and Jesus does some of the work. It's not that at all. It's a participation by which we are drawn into and share in all that Christ has done for his people on the cross, by faith, through grace. So that eating and drinking the bread and wine is analogous to taking Jesus' body and blood by faith and being united to all that he is and does for his people through grace. And this is why Jesus lays so much importance on the new covenant. His blood poured out represents the new covenant that God has made with his people. And the book of Hebrews reminds us that the blood of bulls and goats was never sufficient to make atonement for sin. That is, the old covenant was always meant to point to something greater. Not different, not different, but greater. And this is who Jesus is. He inaugurates the covenant between God and his people that will never be broken because he has perfectly satisfied all of its requirements for his people. He has perfectly made atonement for our breaking of the first covenant between us and God. And his blood seals us into this new covenant reality by washing us clean of our guilt and thus making us the kind of people that God is pleased to call his own. And again, the crucial thing is not just that by drinking the cup we remember that Jesus did this for us, but we see it confirmed by him, that this is reality for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus alone. And this is what makes the Lord's Supper a means of grace. We've often talked about means of grace here lately, and, and it's important to do that because the, the Christian life can't be lived in our own strength. It can't be lived by the power that we somehow uh, rise up in ourselves or, or that we go out there, and, and as long as we just have this vague idea that, oh, we're going to try to uh, obey Jesus, that that's going to be sufficient to make us 
uh, resist sin and, and stay in it for the long haul when life gets tough and sometimes you wonder where Jesus is or you don't understand the plans he has for you or it just doesn't seem to be working out the way you think it ought to work out. You know, if we tried to do it in the, our own strength, we, we'd be fish in a barrel for the devil. And, and so the means of grace are so important because they key us back into the, the reality of the gospel, which is that it's a reality, not, nothing to do with uh, ourselves, nothing to do with anything we bring to God, but everything to do with God's work for us by grace. They key us into the fact that it's only by being nourished by God himself that we are able to stand firm for him. Only by being nourished by God, God, by God himself that we're able to have the hope of eternal life and, and, and know for sure that it's our hope, not just some vague uh, hope that's out there and, and uh, or just some news that, that is just out there in the ether that, man, if I, if I just hold on to that, maybe I'll be saved. But it's a reality for us because God confirms it to us in the means of grace, in the preached word, in the, the sacrament of baptism, and in the Lord's Supper. And consider what this means for how we, we approach the table. It, it can't do us much good if we come to the table unaware of its meaning. The Lord's Supper doesn't work by its own inherent power. Merely eating bread and drinking juice uh, doesn't convey any, any spiritual reality. Instead, the, the Lord's Supper works by nourishing faith. And this means that we're reminded by it what faith in Jesus does for us. It seals the new covenant reality on our hearts if the new covenant reality has indeed been wrought in our hearts by regeneration. And this means that we have to prepare to receive and diligently think over the Lord's Supper if it is indeed to be a nourishment to our faith. It, it can't nourish a faith that doesn't exist or, or isn't aware of what's going on. But if we receive it as the sign and seal of a supernatural reality that has been wrought in our hearts by a supernatural God, wrought in our hearts by regeneration, wrought in our hearts by all that the Lord has done for us and proclaims to us in the gospel, then we have the confidence to know that the blood of Jesus avails to make us right before God. It confirms to us that the body and blood of Jesus both saves us from the wrath to come and keeps us in the love of God forever. And, and we understand, don't we, a little bit better what, what this means when we consider what this meal would have meant to the disciples at the darkest hour of redemption history. Because when, Jesus, when Judas betrayed Jesus, it wasn't just Judas's wickedness that was revealed, but the faltering and stumbling hearts of the rest of the disciples was also. I mean, they scattered. Peter denied him three times. You know, <clears throat> the Lord's Supper wasn't just a nice meal to remind some basically good disciples how much God loved them and, 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 and all that he was going to do for them. It was a meal to remind some basically wicked disciples that despite their sin, God was for them. That despite the fact that they denied him, God was for them. Despite their disloyalty, God was for them. And so it's a meal for disciples like us, we who are prone to give up, we who are prone to sinfulness, we who still are prone to uh, forget who God is, um, to forget that we uh, enjoy all of his benefits only by grace, to still to look to our own strength to, to make up the difference. People who give up on the path of obedience too easily, who are frightened by the things of this world. It is a meal for sinners who need, who need Jesus precisely because we are not sufficient in ourselves. And consider also what it means that Jesus chose a meal to signify and seal what he had accomplished for his people. You know, in, in ancient times, a meal uh, often accompanied the ratification of a covenant between two parties. And, and it didn't just signify 
the, the seriousness of, of the two parties to the covenant, that they were really serious about keeping the terms of the covenant, it also signified the fellowship and peace that resulted uh, as, uh, by the covenant. It signified uh, the, the, the blessings that, that accompanied the covenant and the very reason that they had made it. And in the same way, the Lord's Supper signifies not just that we have peace with God, but that, God has, uh, uh, that God's covenant is the one that keeps us in that peace, that God's covenant is the one that drew us in to begin with, and that God, by his sovereign grace, keeps, a, keeps us in that covenant, not in our own strength, but in his strength. It's not just the bare fact of forgiveness, therefore, that is significant in the Lord's Supper. It's our union and communion with Jesus. Our ability to fellowship with God in peace because we are covered by the new covenant. Our being washed clean from our sin and our more desiring to love and honor the Lord and, and, and be unashamed in his presence and comforted by his love. All these things are visibly represented for us in this meal. And this shows us that it is not our commitment to God that makes the Lord's Supper meaningful, but God's commitment to us. In these natural things, God testifies to the supernatural work that he has accomplished for us. He testifies to the reality of the new covenant promises, promises that he has kept for us and that we are drawn into by his grace. In these things, the covenant meal comes almost as it were to stand in to represent the glory of the new covenant itself. But this finally points us to a tension inherent in our text. And it's an attention that our text leaves us with. And it's the tension of the already and the not yet of God's kingdom. At the present time, Jesus invites us to a table at which he is our feast. And in this feast, we, we participate in the past sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And, and this is really the already of God's kingdom. Already we are drawn into fellowship with him. Already our sins are covered. Already we have peace with him. Already we are united together and share together in the fellowship of the saints. But there will come a day when Jesus will join us at this table as a fellow diner. And this is what he points us to in verse 25. This is the, the not yet of God's kingdom. Not yet is Jesus physically present with us. Not yet does he join us in feasting. For now we participate in a feast that is a, uh, as a shadow of a greater meal to come, the, the Lamb's wedding feast. It's a prelude to this wedding feast. When we, the church, Jesus' bride, will feast with him forever. And it assures us that we will participate in that feast by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And it points us to the fact that we will do so precisely because Jesus has, come, has drunk the cup of wrath in our stead. So do we value the Lord's table as a gift from him? And do we regularly prepare to receive it with understanding so that it may strengthen our faith in him. It's amazing to me that, that all of the glories of the new covenant reality are pictured for us in a meal. I think that's just one of the most comforting things of the entire gospel. Because so often, you know, even if at the present time our circumstances seem all right and nothing much about the curse of the world seems to be infringing upon our reality too much, eventually we're going to be reminded that we live in a world that is not the way it should be. Eventually, we're going to be reminded that our sin uh, has consequences, that it makes life sometimes very unbearable, that, that there's, de there's death and wickedness in the world, and, and, and so much of, of, of what we experience is so contrary to God's original good design for creation. 
And, and this would leave us just so utterly depressed unless we had a firm hope that there is a life to come that is greater than this life, that, that, that God has, has finally and forever done away with the curse of, of, of sin in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so that we can look forward to a time in which we will fellowship with God forever in peace and righteousness without all of the, uh, the nastiness and, and, and horrific effects of, of, a, of, of a life under the curse of sin. And how wonderful that God pictures this for us in a meal. All of us know that, that really, when we really want to get to know someone, when we really want to show that we fellowship with one another, that they are our friends and they mean something to us, one of the best ways we do it is invite them to a, to a meal with us. It's just a, a very human and natural way of interacting. And yet, how much more so does God invite us to picture our relationship with him as, as one of peace and fellowship by the very fact that he invites us to a meal? And I love the way that Michael Horton just said it in a, in a sentence. He says, in the Lord's Supper, we are invited to a table and not to an altar. We deserve to go to an altar. We deserve to have um, uh, the, the price for our sins to be paid by our own lives on the altar. And yet that has been uh, covered for us by the death of the sacrificial lamb, by the death of the Passover lamb. And instead, because he has satisfied the righteous requirements of God's law, we, he, is, he invites us to his table, not to an altar, but to a table. And so how much of a picture of God's grace to us is represented here in the physical elements of bread and wine? That God loves us and is for us in, in all things, and that though life is, is still very much under the curse of sin, that progressively we, we see that, that we are being drawn into that kingdom and more and more desiring to, to love God and more and more becoming more and more like him. And eventually, uh, he will come and bring his kingdom to bear in, in every aspect of our lives. And we will feast with him and the Lamb's wedding feast forever. And what a glorious, glorious day that will be. So, Mark 14 teaches us three things. Well, at least three things. First, the death of Jesus satisfied God's judgment against sin for all who are united to him by faith. Second, our union with Christ is, uh, by faith is signified and sealed by the Lord's Supper. And third, we must be diligent to understand what the Lord's Supper means so that it may nourish our faith. We must be diligent to understand what the Lord's Supper means so that it may nourish our faith. If we come to the Lord's table with a sort of lackadaisical attitude or the idea that uh, it's just some bare and empty ritual that you know, Christians just sort of do, then it's not going to be very effective to nourish our faith in Him, to confirm to us the reality of the gospel in our lives. But if we come to it diligently uh, prepared to see in it that God is for us, to see in it the, the gospel represented in physical things, then it will help to confirm to us more and more the reality of the gospel in our lives. And this will help us to live more and more obedient lives. That it will have the effect of moving us away from our proclivities to sin and more towards desiring the good things of God. So that more and more we desire what he commands and, and love what he promises. That's, that's not a natural experience. We don't naturally desire the things of God and, and, and naturally love the things that he promises. That's the result of the supernatural work of God. And, and, and it doesn't come about by ordinary means. It comes about by the Spirit working in our hearts. And so one of the ways that he works at that in our hearts is through the means of grace. So we must be diligent to prepare to, to receive it. And therefore, we, we have the hope that we will, through that means, become faithful followers of Jesus. So take that to heart. Be diligent to understand what the Lord's Supper means so that it may nourish your faith when we partake of it. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth of the gospel. It's the truth that 
we never tire or, or, or never cease to need to hear. But it's the truth that uh, confirms to us your love for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you have visibly represented it in, in physical things so that we see in the bread and, and, and wine uh, the truth of the gospel uh, laid out for us. That as we partake of the, the bread, we see that Jesus' body was broken for our sin. And as we drink the, the juice, we see that the blood of the new covenant is reality that, that is uh, for us and works in our lives. Lord, may we be diligent to lay hold of these means of grace, not to think of them as, as bare rights, but as, as, as living means by which you confirm by your spirit the truth of the gospel and make us more like Jesus. May we be diligent to pursue it, not in our own strength, but by the grace that you alone supply. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.